All right, if you would turn with me, the scripture passage this evening is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to joke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These are the words of our Lord. We are uh, wrapping up our study this semester, uh, asking ourselves the question, why believing uh, matters? And what we're doing is, is we're looking at the answer to that question uh, by seeing the effects that the Holy Spirit has on the life of the people in whom he inhabits. In other words, we we realize that by looking at the Apostles' Creed, we're dividing up the uh, uh, creed into three sections that are about the Trinity. The first part is about God the Father, the second part about God the Son, and finally the Spirit. And what you get in the last part of the creed are the effects that the Spirit has on people. We looked last week at this formation of the church and the idea of the fact that there's a communion among these people that is unique. Well, tonight we come to this little phrase where we confess when we say the creed, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so what I want to look at tonight is what does it mean to say that? And there's a sense in which initially I almost feel like um, we're tempted to look at a phrase like that as sort of some very sweet, sort of sticky, kind of smarmy thing that Christians just sort of say. I believe in forgiveness. Sounds almost like I believe the children are our future or something like that. You know, no one knows what that means. Now, but I want to pitch to you tonight, and I'm going to try to illustrate this for you, that to say that you believe in forgiveness places you on the radical end of this world's spiritual poles, the radical end. And this was never illustrated to me more vividly than when I got a chance to read a little book uh, by Simon Weisenthal called The Sunflower. Some of you had to read this book uh, for some of your uh, honors classes. I've heard you uh, um, uh, refer to it. Uh, Weisenthal is a, um, is a Holocaust survivor and has an experience during the days after World War II was uh, ending that, to be honest with you, is surreal by anyone's uh, uh, estimation. Uh, Weisenthal is living in a prison camp that maintained also a hospital for German soldiers. 
And Weisenthal, at one point through a series of circumstances, finds himself face-to-face with a wounded, mortally wounded SS officer, German officer, uh, and who was dying. But in the fog of his death throes, as this guy is literally dying before his very eyes, he starts detailing the crimes that he committed as a German uh, Nazi officer. And I mean, to the point of almost not being proper to talk about it, one of the most vivid of which is where he confessed and talked about burning down a building full of Jewish people, while he and his other officer buddies laughed as they shot the ones who ran from the building screaming in flames. And he's confessing all this to Weisenthal as he's standing in the room, just happened to be there. And all of a sudden, in the midst of his confession, he grabs Weisenthal by the shirt and he says, I need to know if you forgive me. Will you forgive me? for what I've done. Am I dying forgiven? So Weisenthal poses this question to the reader. What should I have done? In other words, should I actually have forgiven this man, who, by the way, died just hours later? And the rest of the book contains these responses from thinkers, philosophers, and theologians from all over the world. It is a fascinating read. But what interested me about reading this book, when I got a chance to pick up to it, is how quickly the respondents who look at Weisenthal's situation begin to realize how the question, how do I forgive, is connected to the question of, where is God in all of this? In other words, it's impossible, I think, to really talk about the struggle for forgiveness without talking about God. You want to know why? Because when you're faced with the real depths of the need to forgive, you begin to realize that you're asking questions about ultimate justice. The one thing that God claims to have in his own person and in his own character. And when you wrap yourself up in the vivid pain that man has committed against man, or perhaps even the pain in which you've suffered yourself up until this time in your life, you begin to realize that there are answers to that pain that only God can give. Only God can bring that. And so Weisenthal, interestingly enough, ultimately concludes that there is no God. Or if there is, he is disturbingly absent. He is is absent himself from the process. So here's my question for you. How is it that Christians dare to say that it is at the core of what they believe to say that we are about the business of forgiveness. I'm going to look at that tonight through the lens of three things. No surprise there. I'm going to look, first of all, at the costliness of forgiveness. I want to look at the reality of forgiveness. And then finally, just a very brief word on the practice of forgiveness. Okay? Costliness, reality, and then the practice thereof. Look, first of all, the costliness of forgiveness. When was the last time if ever, you found yourself in a circumstance in which you, were, in which you have to forgive. Tim Keller likes to refer to an, an interesting point here when he uh, speaks about an author whose name is going to escape me. Uh, and I lost it, and it won't come back. It'll probably come back in the middle of this discussion. Keller, though, talks about when he's quoting this particular author, Miroslav Wolf. Thank you. It just came to me. How can you forget a name like Miroslav Wolf? What Wolf says is, and he's actually Croatian, And if you understand, I mean, the ethnic cleansings that went on in the sort of uh, Baltic states of a couple of decades ago created horrific suffering. 
And what Wolf says is, he says, it's very interesting to go into the West, namely American sort of cultured society, and see how blithely we throw around the idea of forgiveness. In, in many ways, it's like, oh, of course we should forgive our neighbor. And we sort of shrug our shoulders with it. But what Wolf says is, he says, you don't understand, forgiveness never really grips you until you actually stand face to face with the person who is responsible for the death of your spouse, who you actually watched torture and kill your parents. Then all of a sudden, forgiveness becomes something that is weighty, that's heavy on the conscience. You know, plant yourself in a Middle Eastern country. Plant yourself in certain uh, provinces in Africa. Go to a Chinese sweatshop, and suddenly the issue of forgiveness is nowhere near as easy as we think that it is. And in my opinion, this is exactly what prompts Peter's question in verse 21. Look, Jesus has just basically told his people, his followers, that if someone sins against you, then you should actually uh, uh, bring their offense to them, and if they repent, then you should accept them back. And then he kind of goes on and talks about some other things. And I have this vision of Peter sitting there saying to himself, huh, okay, I get it if, you know, somebody does something against me like one time, but what if they do it again? As a matter of fact, what if they did it then a third time? Uh, You know, Jesus, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure how long this should go on. Question, hand goes up. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Like, when am I able to say that from here, you're cut off. Our friendship ends. And to be honest with you, I think it's rather magnanimous of Peter to say, oh, I don't know, up to seven times. And Jesus comes and gives him a response that basically says, no, it's actually 70 times, seven times, which doesn't mean 490. Sorry, quick math there. (laughs) What he means is, and that's kind of a Jewish way of saying, the responsibility to forgive for the people who follow me is unlimited. Did you catch that? In other words, Jesus looks and says, there is no level to which you get where you can finally cut someone off when they come back to you and repent. Now look, y'all, that is an unsettling standard by anyone's guesstimation, okay? Uh, No limits on forgiveness. And you'd start to think to yourself, how is it possible for Jesus to make that kind of a claim? And I suspect that he knows that And so he says, maybe I'd better tell a story to illustrate this and to let you know. And he tells the story of this king who calls in this servant, grants him forgiveness, and then that servant goes out and denies forgiveness, and suddenly he's in trouble. That's the story. You've probably read it a bunch of times and been familiar with it. In my opinion, though, the real impact of this story doesn't come until you realize exactly financially what's going on here. Uh, A talent in sort of biblical weights and measures is a measure of weight. And it's actually sort of a big weight. A talent is somewhere around 75 pounds of something, right? Well, this guy owes 10,000 of those things, okay? So the guy owes somewhere around 750,000 pounds of something. Now, the, um, the, the, you know, the commentators like to try to guess exactly what it would have been that he would have owed I'm guessing that Jesus is trying to exaggerate this contrast, so let's just say that he's talking about gold, all right? This summer when I was working on these, uh, uh, on these messages, I actually looked up the price of gold. I know it's gone up actually higher since that time. But as of this summer, gold was running somewhere around uh, $1,200, a little over $1,200 per ounce, 
per ounce, all right? What that means is, is that this servant would have owed somewhere around like $14.5 trillion. Let that sink in. Now, for us, unfortunately, we live in a time where trillion like has meaning for us, which is kind of a drag. You know, national debt is in trillions, and you're like going, I don't even know how many zeros there are in trillions. But what, what, but you have to understand that in Jesus' day, like trillion wasn't even on the radar screen. It was an unimaginable sum. Um, I, I read somewhere where the whole Roman Empire at that time ran on something like a million dollars. A million dollars to pave all the roads and pay all the officials and to keep a standing army. It makes me wonder that if Jesus looked and said, there was a man who owed 10,000 talents. Somebody in the crowd was like, what? nobody could amass that kind of a debt. What's he saying? Look, Jesus is trying to get what I think is the very first step in grasping biblical forgiveness. And that is that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness hurts. There is something emotionally of great and wide cost that comes when we face ourselves with having to forgive. True life-melting pain comes when you find yourself having to try to forgive someone that you don't want to. And Jesus, like it or not, is trying to help you see something. He's saying, look, you've got to understand that there is something of an analogy between your pain and having to forgive others and my father's pain at having to forgive you. Now bear with me. Look, y'all, Jesus is trying to say this is where it really is. And, and you know, honestly, the best illustration I come up with is the one that Hammond provided for us a couple of weeks ago. When Hammond was talking about Psalm 51, he got to that very weird part in verse 4 where King David, having, oh, I don't know, murdered a guy, committed adultery, got her pregnant, lied about it, and went on like nothing happened, (laughs) comes up and gets busted for it by the prophet Nathan, right? Totally busted. And all of a sudden, in the midst of his repentance of it, he says this in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And Hammond brought this up, and I thought about that. that Let that register for a second. Uh, Against God and God only have you sinned, David? I don't know if I'd say that. (laughs) Uh, How about Uriah? How about Bathsheba? How about the unborn child that died because of all this? (laughs) Against you and you only? What is David saying? What David understood, though, I think, is that he understood sin the way the Bible understands sin. Look, y'all, all sin against another person or against ourselves or against anything in God's creation, God takes personally because there is so much of his character imprinted upon the image of God in other people and so much of his glory manifested in the creation around us that he says sin against that is sin against me. And I take it personally. Look, y'all, Jesus is saying that before you can reasonably grasp what I'm asking you to do in forgiveness, you have to get a glimpse of how your sin looks to me. Your offense to me, your maker, is inconceivable to your finite mind. It is an amount of money that you owe that you do not have adequate grasp of right now. 
and that even your imagination cannot fathom. It is an inconceivable thing. What is a triviality to you is a slap in the face to me. You will never understand what the Bible suggests about forgiveness until you see how costly it is first. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, um, okay, Les, that makes the problem worse. I'm depressed now. I'm in a bad way. What does that mean? Well, that brings me to the second thing about the reality of forgiveness. Look at the reaction of the king to grasp this. Because at the sight of the man's begging, he releases his, him from his debt and lets him go. And at this point, there's a lot of people who actually misunderstand what's going on in the rest of the story. Look, first, the man shows that something is deeply wrong in the exchange that he just had with the king by denying forgiveness for what in comparison was a much smaller debt. That ought to be your first clue to think, how could that guy do that? Now, some people reason that in what I think is a very wrong way, and they say to themselves, ah, this is where the Bible teaches this kind of a forgiveness quid pro quo with God. In other words, if I give God sort of forgiveness of others, then he will be pleased with me and let me into heaven, right? In other words, God, God is the king who grants someone forgiveness, but when he sees them not forgive me, he takes that forgiveness away. And some people from passages like this have reasoned that salvation in Christ is something that comes and goes, right? Depending on how well you lived up to that standard is whether or not you're in possession of the reality of that, of that favor from God. Look, y'all, this, this is a big problem in my opinion, and it's a huge misunderstanding. The reason why is because the Bible contradicts it. The Bible is constantly going on and on to talk about the security of those who have placed their faith in Christ. John chapter 10 describes a believer like they were a sheep and says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. But look, but I think there's another clue, though, in the passage that we're reading. Did you notice while James was reading how enthusiastic this servant is when he goes to his servant to collect on that debt? As a matter of fact, that guy, having left the king, goes to his servant with, I think, a degree of, of anxiety. Like, he's anxious, so much so that it says he begins to choke his ser uh, servant. That's a crazy scene. This man's got his hands around the man's neck, right? Pay back what you owe me, he says. Why the franticness? Let me pitch this at you. Does it not make sense to read this passage and say that the reason why the servant is so frantic to collect from his servant is because he doesn't believe that the king really forgave him. In other words, I don't think that this is the story of a king who granted forgiveness and then took it back. I think rather it's the story of a man who was offered forgiveness but never took it. In other words, he goes out to say, well, i got to get some money together because I don't believe the king really did it. And you know what comes of his life? It becomes a disaster. Now, look, y'all, think about the psychology of this and how much this could work on you. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine that after RUF tonight, a friend comes up to you and asks if they can borrow $20. Not a huge amount of money, but also not a, not a paltry sum either. You oblige, right? But tomorrow morning, you get a phone call from home. 
Your parents have informed you that that little form that you filled out for the publishers, uh, the clearinghouse publisher sweepstakes, I don't know, what do you do? No, we need something better than that. The lottery, how about that? The lottery ticket that on a joke you filled out a while back suddenly paid off. You now have the largest lottery that, that your home state has ever offered you. You have like $500 million that's all yours. You cashed in. You will never have to worry about money for the rest of your existence. Now, I want you to imagine that you're dancing around. <laughs> your dorm room, whatever. You're dancing on your way to class. You're doing something. There's a celebration. And all of a sudden, your cell phone rings. And you know who it is? It's your friend from last night who looks at you and says, Look, and before you can tell them what's going on, he, they're like, look, I'm really so sorry. I really have meant to get back with you on that money. Like, I'm a little short right now. I had a chance to go by the ATM. Look, could you just give me a little more time, and I'll pay back your $20? Now, what are you going to say to that person? You know what? Could you hurry right over? I'm a little short right now. You would never say that. Why? <laughs> you would look and say, $20? Keep your 20 bucks." Do you need more? Don't you understand? I just cashed in on the lottery. But here's the deal, though. If you demanded repayment, yeah, I need that 20 bucks, really. Would that not suggest if you did, then you would think that actually the lottery thing was not real? You see where that's going? Look, y'all, what happened? <laughs> the massive fortune of the lottery demoted the offense of the $20. Does that make sense? It took the pain of that debt that that person owes and was like, that's nothing compared to this. Look, here's the point. Jesus says, my forgiveness, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> my forgiveness demotes the pain that you're experiencing from having been hurt. It demotes it. It puts your pain on the periphery of your thinking. How? Because it's just that good. Look, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That one of the main ways in which I got over some of the relationships and the relational wreckage that I inflicted. It's my fault for the podcast people out there. One of the main ways in which I got over that was because of Ginger. <laughs> Ginger's acceptance of me demoted the pain inflicted against me and that, other, that I committed against them because it was just that good. Look, so here's my question for you. Is it possible that Jesus' forgiveness could be that great to demote all the other hurts that anyone else has committed against you? Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. And I want to put in front of you, okay, that's very honest, and you need to be that honest, but what if... What if the struggle to deal with that parent who you've been trying to forgive is not by heaping more and more guilt on your head about how little you have forgiven? What if the struggle of getting past the desire, the almost unquenchable desire to give the dirty look or the, or the angry sort of letter or the little piece of gossip towards that other person can actually be alleviated because there was something so good? What if? Learn what this ministry, if you want to know what RUF is about, it's about that. Of trying to convince you that there was something that great. Jesus looks and says, I am saying that even on the cross, think about this. How can Jesus ask for that of his people? 
How can he look at his people and say, the, the obligation for you to forgive is unlimited unless he himself offered unlimited forgiveness to all who will repent? You can always come back. Please hear that. <laughs> Jesus is saying you can always come back with repentance. But as long as you're hard-hearted, there's nowhere to go. And what happens is, is you're going to get embittered and hardened by the fact that you won't actually allow yourself to soften. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to begin to exact payment from others to compensate from the emptiness that you feel of having been hurt by them. And you know what you're going to do? All you're going to do is pass on that bitterness for one more generation. Some of you are sitting here tonight having been the recipient of generations of bitterness. You have parents who have never dealt with the issue of forgiveness. And you're still living with it. They passed it on. Look, y'all, the reality of forgiveness is, is that Jesus' forgiveness is just that good. Forgiveness is not an option in the Christian life. But the forgiveness that he offers you is not imaginary. It's not elusive. It's as tangible as his cross on our behalf. Okay, so where does that leave us? What do we do? How do we put this into practice? Les? What does this look like? Because you've got a million different questions because I guarantee you've been thinking about four or five people that you're like, oh, I don't like them. We start lacing through, what does it mean? What does it mean to me to forgive them? And that brings me to the third point about the practice of forgiveness. Okay, two simple things. First of all, what forgiveness is and is not. That's my first point. Please understand something. Forgiveness is not amnesia. All right? Forgiveness is not what offense they committed against me. I don't even remember. And what we do is we quote that verse from the Old Testament where it says that God will remove your sins uh, from as far as the east is from the rest, and he will remember them no more. Okay, don't think by that that God will be like, oh, you sinned? Really? When did that happen when you get into heaven? That's not what that passage means. What, God, what the passage means is that God will not visit the payment for those sins on you. That's what remember means. It's not amnesia, first of all. Just because you still remember the offense and still feel the pain of that does not mean that you've not forgiven that person. This is huge for a lot of you, because for a lot of you, it still keeps you up at night what this person did against you. And you come to me, you're like, I don't think I've forgiven them. Well, well just because you remember doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven. Secondly, though, forgiveness is also not sort of a refusal to deal with uh, difficult life patterns. I don't know how many of you have ever had to deal with an addicted person, someone who's involved with uh, alcohol or drugs or some kind of emotional struggle. But what's interesting is, is if you, oftentimes in the midst of their desperation, those addicted people will say, why are you doing this to me? Don't you, don't you love me? Can't you forgive me and give me one more chance? Look, forgiveness does not ignore the fact that there may be sinful patterns in this person that I need to cross their will with. No, no, I'm taking you to rehab now. And I'm not giving you a choice in the matter. That's not unforgiving to do that. Does that make sense? Thirdly, Forgiveness also is not trusting people right away, okay? If I own a business and all of a sudden I find that there's been an employee who has been embezzling tens of thousands of dollars from my company, I can forgive them from my heart for what they've done, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily have to hire them back. Just because your abusive boyfriend slash girlfriend looks at you and says, I'm sorry, won't you please forgive me, does not mean that you get back together with them. There may be patterns that that person has to go through that you may not be the one to help through. Those are not forgiveness. Now, you're saying, okay, so what is it? Ah, good question. Forgiveness is 
being willing to take the hit. That's what forgiveness is. Think about what this king had to go through. This king now has a what? $14.5 trillion hole in his bank account, right? He absorbed the debt. What he looked at was say, I am not going to do anything to actively make you pay for what you've done against me. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the determination that I look and say, I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to make you pay with harsh words. I'm not going to make you pay with dirty looks. I'm not going to make you pay with that choice little piece of gossip that I share through somebody else that comes back around that I know will hurt you and bring your reputation down. It's a refusal to give someone the cold shoulder just to let them know what abandonment feels like. Real forgiveness is to say, the buck stops here. I am going to absorb that. And listen to me, y'all. That hurts. It hurts to forgive. There is a almost tangible pain that our hearts can go through when we look and we say and we bring to God, God, all I have is this anger and bitterness and want to strike out and lash out. What are you going to do for me? And the response of the cross is to come back and say, I want you to think about what I did for you first. And is it not possible that my acceptance of you could demote that pain? What forgiveness is and is not. Secondly, though, and we'll finish with this. Forgiveness is not just sort of, um, uh, 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 forgiveness is one thing. Reconciliation is another. But both are suggested in the word forgiveness. Y'all, forgiveness is sort of towards the offense. Like I forgive the offense that was committed against me. Reconciliation, though, is towards the person, toward that individual. Look, we are not only to move away from what someone did against me, but we are also supposed to move toward the other person. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Hey, this is our business, Paul says. Did you see the succession? Forgiveness is not just from, it's also to. It's not only moving away from the offense, it's moving towards the person. How can we be reconciled in this life? Look, y'all, here's the deal. You have to once again think about what God did. I think for a lot of us, we suffer with very insecure Christianity because we kind of get the forgiveness thing. We look and say, yes, Jesus died on the cross for all of my sins. I was talking about this tonight with somebody. In other words, we look and we have all the things that we did wrong, but in some senses that's not enough because it still feels like God is up there sort of with his arms crossed, you know. Well, okay, I'll let it go. I mean, if you prayed, all right, you seem pretty miserable, fine. That is not the message of Christianity. God gave us the, the message of reconciliation, which means I not only have blotted out your offenses, but I have moved towards you to bind myself to you, to actually, to use our language, to marry you as the bride of Christ, like we talked about last week. <laughs> In other words, God does not want to relate to his people in a detached and distant way. 
He gets all up in our business. And that ought to be the most encouraging thing. Because what that means is I don't have to live detached lives from even the people who I'm either have hurt me in the past or who I'm terrified of hurting me now. Look, y'all, forgiveness is one thing. Reconciliation is another. I wonder how differently we would look at forgiveness if we knew that God was doing that. Again, consider it an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are... There is no way that there are not stories aplenty tonight. There are names and faces that are drifting through our minds and through our hearts. There are even old bitternesses that that we had thought were long since gone because we had just forgotten about them that are all rising up to the top. So, Lord Jesus, we are bringing those to you in, in, in the best way that we know how because though we can talk about your forgiveness It's another thing to actually give it to other people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how you have worked in us and through us and toward us. And Lord Jesus, we're just convinced that if we knew that better tonight by your Spirit, that if your Holy Spirit would impact us with that, that would drive that home in whatever way the Holy Spirit does that, we might walk out of here with an ability to live with people that we otherwise didn't think we could. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you deal with the pain that must be in the hearts of all of my friends here and in mine too by showing us how much you love us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.